0: Good morning. A couple words to um, our visitors this morning. I want to welcome you also. Um, we're very pleased to have you. But I do want to say just a couple short words before we begin our eg- exposition in John's Gospel. Um, oftentimes people will come and they'll visit, and unless they know what they're looking for in a church, if they perhaps have come out of a church that's really loose on the teaching and uh, it's entertainment driven or whatnot. Uh, their system is in store for a shock. And, and, and I don't say that flippantly. What, what I mean by that um, is that many times visitors will come and they're Christians. They profess to be Christians and they'll say, yeah, they'll, you know, loved ones will ask them, well, did you enjoy it? And they'll say, well, you know, I don't really like hymns and, you know, the service was a little long. But to let you know, the reason we sing hymns, and we do sing contemporary songs, only if the words, the context, exalt and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the words we sing are all about the words we sing. So we want to make sure they have content. We want to make sure, we want to be certain that what we're singing is with regard to the finished work and the person of Jesus Christ. That he is high and exalted that the word of God is being taught in a manner that is glorifying to God because God himself said that I have exalted my word above that of my own name. So when we hear visitors as some loved ones who visited uh, a couple weeks ago, they said, well, we liked it, but the service was a little long. I said, well, how long was it? I'm thinking one of our elders. I said it was in and out, hour and 45 minutes. And it's kind of grieving when a Christian would say an hour and 45 minutes of joining together with other sinners saved by grace is too long, but yet we'll spend 50 bucks to go to a two-hour movie. We'll sit in front of our television sets for five, six hours a day. And yet when it comes to worshiping Almighty God who's redeemed His sinners by grace, an hour, an hour and 45 minutes is too long. May it not be such here, Amen. Please open your Bibles to John chapter seventeen. We enter in now to the one of the most sacred portions of Scripture in all the Bible. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. But I want to begin by reading the first five verses, for they will be our focus this morning. It's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, these are words of the Lord praying to the Father. This is the real Lord's Prayer. What we know is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus instructed his disciples, when you pray, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be in thy name. We ought to retitle that prayer the Disciples' Prayer. Because Jesus could never have prayed that prayer. Because Jesus would never have the need to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That prayer is a model prayer for us. This is the Lord's prayer. And we must pay careful attention to every word that is in this chapter. I begin in verse one. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This ends the reading of God's word this morning. Now, brothers and sisters, friends, family, much has been said about John chapter 17 throughout time. One theologian of old said this, If it be lawful to prefer one scripture above another, we may say, though all be gold, yet this is a pearl in the gold. Though all be like the heavens, this is the sun and the stars. End quote. Charles Spurgeon With regard to John 17, said this, quote, if one part of scripture be more dear to the believer than any other, it must be this which contains his master's last prayer before he entered through the rent veil of his own crucified body. John Knox, the eminent Scottish reformer, said that John 17 is where he drops his first anchor. And there's no doubt about that because when John Knox laid on his deathbed, he had this chapter read to him every day during his last illness. And in the closing scene of his life, the verses that were read from it by his wife consoled and encouraged him in his final battle. Philip Melanchthon, German theologian and friend of Martin Luther, when giving his last lecture before his death, he said of John chapter 17, quote, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself, end quote. J.C. Ryle, he said that John 17 is the most remarkable in the Bible, it stands alone and there's nothing like it. A.W. Pink, he said that the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. It is the utterance of the mind and heart of the God-man in the very crisis of his undertaking and for the accomplishment of which he had become incarnate. This is a prayer unlike any other prayer throughout all of redemptive history, brothers and sisters. Chapter 17 has been referred to as the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth which follows the greatest sermon ever preached on earth. That being the upper room discourse, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. All in one night. This chapter's been referred to as the holy of holies of scripture. It comes on the eve of the Lord's crucifixion prior to his great high priestly work atoning for the sins of many Jesus said in John or I'm sorry Mark chapter 10 verse 45 that the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many and we shall see this morning who those many are his mission was drawing near its ultimate fulfillment. This great prayer ends the Lord's earthly ministry while it conveys with absolute clarity the very purpose for which he came. All that was left for Jesus this night was the dark cross of Calvary and the culmination of all of his sufferings for you. If you're in Christ, for you. Now, Jesus could have prayed this prayer silently. But he spoke it aloud for his 11 disciples that night to hear. They penned it down years later, and here it is for us to hear 2,000 years later. Now, Jesus, we know, was in constant communion with his Father. No one prayed like Jesus prayed. And this here, though, is the only prayer where we actually have the words. We have just very short words throughout the rest of Scripture with regard to the Lord's prayers to the Father. When he was baptized in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, the Scripture said he was praying. When he began his public ministry, the Scripture says he rose up long before day and went out into a soli- solitary pra- place, and there, Mark chapter 1, he prayed. On the eve of selecting his 12 disciples, Luke chapter 6 says that he went up on a mountain to pray. He continued all night in prayer, although, friends, he knew that these 12 men were sovereignly selected. While he was in prayer, according to Luke 9, he was transfigured into glory. In John chapter 6, before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus prayed knowing that he would feed those 5,000. They're only counting men. There was also women and children, so there were upward of 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people. Before the tomb of Lazarus, he wept and he prayed knowing he would resurrect that man. That's the very reason which he went into town that day was to resurrect Lazarus, and he prayed. He even died with prayer on his lips. Luke tells us in chapter 23, the Lord cried out, Father, into your hands I commit. My spirit. Now, other than just a few brief words, there is no record of a prayer like this one. No such prayer of this length. So, whatever he said through prayer those three plus years is not recorded for us. But here in John 17, this prayer therefore takes on monumental significance because the whole prayer is there for us to study. It's there for us to hear, as Junior read from it this morning. Now, as we study this over the weeks, my friends, we will see a progression of thought here. A certain progression of thought is being conveyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in it, we observe Jesus speaking to the Father on three subjects. Number one, in verses one to five, he prays with regard to his relationship with his Father. In verses 6 to 19, he prays about his relationship with his 11 apostles. And then finally, in verses 20 to 26, he prays concerning his relationship with future believers. That includes you, and that includes me. Those who would, yet future, be brought to saving faith. Through the words of the apostles that would lay down the words of Scripture by divine inspiration. Now, as we're going to see, this prayer, my friends, is not some whimsical, fragmented prayer that Jesus just threw up at the last minute. Jesus was intentional about everything that he did. And there's a deliberate progression in thought here that is vital for the sake of our understanding. So it's a comprehensive and yet clearly specific prayer in that sense. And within these five first first five verses rather we see the following and they're outlined for you in your bulletin. The focus of our study this morning is verses 1 through 5. And in it we will see the purpose of Christ's ministry. We will also see the price of Christ's ministry. And finally we will see the payoff of Christ's ministry. Now, his ministry has a very special purpose. And that purpose came with a great, great price. And the payoff or the reward was something that only the Son of God could obtain. No one else could obtain such a reward as this, but the one and only Son of God. Now, we hear in this prayer the very heart of our our Lord. And notice the priority of his focus within this prayer is what? It is the glory of the Father. It's that the Father be glorified. It's that the Son be glorified, and the Son being glorified will in turn glorify the Father ultimately. And it's gloriously interesting how the Father will be glorified, which is, takes our attention this morning. So first, let's get into this. Let's look at the purpose of his ministry. We see the purpose of his ministry outlined in verses 1 through 3. Let's begin here in verse 1. Jesus, Jesus spoke these things or your translation may say Jesus spoke these words, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, he spoke these things. These things, or these words, are the words of chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. What is otherwise known as the upper room discourse, and if you've been with us, we've been studying that for the last eight months. Those are the things that he spoke. And notice, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and he says what? Father, Father, which signifies the kind of relationship that the second person of the Godhead has with the first person of the Godhead, an eternal father-son relationship. Now, it's very important to note that although the father and the son are co-eternal, just as God the Father is God, so is Jesus, God the Son. They are equal in essence, they are equal in nature. They're both without beginning. But we see that this relationship, Christ having come to earth, this relationship now is characterized by submission and subordination. Christ's subordination to the Father. Christ submitting to the Father. I always say with women who have difficulty with the doctrine of submission that's clearly taught through Scripture, submitting to their husbands, people, the body, submitting to church leadership, that Christ is our example. God submitted himself. Subordinate to the Father. This is very humbling if we have our eyes and our attention focused on who he is and what he's done. He humbled himself. And this is a reflection of his love for the Father. This is a reflection of his desire to do the very will of the Father. Now, many people today, if you just just discuss anything with regard to God, his glory, the person and work of Jesus Christ, many people attempt to build a case for forgiveness on the idea that God is our Father, he's just All all of us. He's our father and he'll forgive us because he loves us. And that is not true. That is very unbiblical because it contradicts the revealed truth of God in Christ, you see. God is not the intimate father of every single human being. And we cannot in any way find forgiveness just because he's the father and the creator of the universe. Because that manner of thinking makes the cross unnecessary. And his redemption, much ado about nothing. Why would he have to come and die if he's just everyone's father and just forgives everyone equally? It's not the case. You see, because God forgives sin only because Christ, the eternal son, became a curse by the divine decree of God, the father. That's what he subordinated himself to. He submitted himself to become a curse, to become sin as the sinless one. So therefore, as believers, the Apostle Paul tells us that it is the Holy Spirit who comes sent from God to indwell our hearts, crying out what? Abba, Father. Abba, Papa. Father. So in other words, by indwelling us, he enables us To call God Father only through the finished work of his Son, Jesus Christ. So here's a very intimate, eternal relationship. Jesus, God the Son, calling out to the eternal God, the Father, submitted to him. Jesus continues, Father, the hour has come. Now this hour, friends, is a predetermined hour this is an hour that was planned before creation this was not thrown together at the last minute this was not something God threw together when Adam sinned this was established this hour prior to anything being created who's in control of all things? God who's in sovereign control? God who's the sovereign author of all things? God this plan this hour for which Jesus approaches was preordained. now Throughout his ministry, Jesus kept referring to a coming hour. In John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, the wine ran out at the wedding. And the mother of Jesus, Mary, came to him, and she said, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. What hour? This hour. This hour before which he prays this night. That hour is the cross. In John chapter 7, verse 8, he said to his half-brothers, he said, I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. They wanted him dead in Jerusalem. Later on in chapter 7, verse 30, they were seeking to seize him and no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, there he is in the temple. The religious Pharisees, the hierarchy of the day, wanted him dead. The scripture says in John 8 verse 20, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This was an established hour. This was a preordained hour. And Jesus has anticipated this coming hour for a long, long time. anticipating it from eternity past. Before he ever spoke time and space into existence, he anticipated this hour because it had been established then. Now, although many times he said, my hour has not yet come, just days before this night, in John 17, one week prior, in John chapter 12, Jesus then said, verse 23, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John 12, 27, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Okay, now if you would, hold your finger where you are and turn back to John 13. Okay, now John 13 is what began this entire night. Jesus prays here in the wee hours of the morning. We don't know what time it was. But earlier this night, they entered the upper room to celebrate the Passover feast. And in chapter 13, notice, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world, now get that, out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now notice that phrase, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here's this group of 11, out of the unbelieving world, out of all the world, he loved them to the end. And this last phrase is very significant in how it connects to the Lord's prayer this night. So just hang that in your mind, jot it down, keeping in mind that this is what began his message to them before he prayed this beautiful prayer. Now, this hour for which he came, never forget that this hour was stamped in time before he ever created time. This hour was given in the past. This hour was given from the Father, deliberately given to the Son for the sake of the Son and only the Son fulfilling this hour. He prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now notice that as the Son is glorified, and only as the Son is glorified will the Father be glorified. That's another key to our understanding. Now another important feature is that there's only one person who could pray such a prayer as this. Jesus Christ Christ. No one could pray this because only deity can pray such a prayer. You have to be God to pray this. You have to be God in a body that says, glorify me. You're going to pray to the Father and say, glorify me? Then you must be God. Because mere man can only pray this. Please, deliver me a sinful wretch from the pit of hell that I deserve. That's the prayer we can pray, but only Jesus Christ could pray, glorify me. Now the hour that had arrived was the hour for which the spotless lamb of God would be slain. That hour was the cross, and the cross of Jesus Christ would put on display the attributes of God. All the attributes of God would be put on display as Jesus would hang there. We would see, put on display, his holiness. There's an attribute of God. The holiness of God would be displayed upon the cross because, my friends, there is an eternal gulf fixed between holy God and sinful man. And the holy one laid down his life. No sinner is able to step into the presence of God except through the holiness of the cross, Jesus Christ. Another attribute of God that would be displayed upon the cross was that of righteousness. Righteousness would be put on display because the righteous requirement is holy perfection. Holy perfection, and Jesus was perfectly righteous. We would also see love displayed upon the cross. Perfect love, agape love, unconditional love. The scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? He died for us. We would see grace put on display, unmerited favor, Jesus paying the penalty in the place of all who will ever believe. We see his eternality, the fact that Jesus is eternal, the lamb slain according to the preordained plan of God, his eternality. We would also see his immutability up upon the cross. In other words, that God is unchanging. God never changes And throughout all of time, there has never been any change whatsoever in the manner in which God saves people. What about the Old Testament before Jesus came? The people that were saved in the Old Testament looked forward by faith to the promise of God that would be made manifest through His Son. There were people in hell in the Old Testament. They'll be in hell forever. There were those who believed in the coming Messiah. They, by grace, will be in heaven and are in heaven. We who live after the cross, we look back by faith to the cross and the promise fulfilled. God is unchanging. Another attribute of God we would see displayed upon the cross would be that of wrath. One of the attributes of God is wrath. As the father would pour out his vengeance upon the son. He would crush him. Never forget, Isaiah says that it pleased the father to crush the son. He's the one that ultimately and sovereignly murdered his son on the cross. We would also see his sovereignty displayed upon the cross. The sovereign accomplished victory of Jesus Christ purchasing our eternal salvation. So, again, Jesus' main objective here the glory of the Father, to where the attributes of God the Father would be put on display. How then? Here's the question. How then will the Father be specifically, specifically glorified through the crosswork of Jesus Christ? Look at verse two. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now notice, all flesh, And all whom you have given him are two totally different groups of people. All flesh means all humanity from throughout all time. That's all flesh. Now, that's the entire human race for which Jesus has all authority. Jesus has the authority to save. Jesus has the authority to judge. Jesus has authority over heaven. Jesus has authority over earth. When he gave the Great Commission to the disciples after his resurrection, he said, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. Go therefore, because of that truth, and make disciples of all nations. He's given authority. And every creature within creation, Christ has authority over. Now, the second group that he refers to here is a group, an inner circle within that overarching group. Within that universal group of all humanity, there's a smaller group. And this is very important, brothers and sisters. It is this smaller group that occupies the Lord's attention throughout this prayer in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17. Now notice the verbs here. Gave and given. You may have given and given, but nevertheless, they're both past tense. They're both, they both appear in the past tense. Now, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, what we see here is that there was a giving on, part, on the part of the father to the son, which occurred in the past. The father gave a group of people to the son sometime in the past. And this distinct group was given to the son out of this universal group. It's very important that we do not miss this. A smaller group given out of the larger group for which he has all authority over was given to him for the sake of granting that group eternal life. Notice carefully what verse two does not say. It does not say you gave him authority over all flesh that he may give eternal life to all without exception. It does not say that. Because he does not give eternal life to all without exception. We know without doubt not all will be saved or there would be no hell. Clearly does not say that. But rather it says to those only which the Father has given to the Son in the past. He has come to this hour for. In other words, Jesus has sovereign authority to give eternal life. And he gives eternal life to every single person person that the Father has given to him for that very purpose, for the sake of saving. Friends, this is simply referring to the mystery of divine election, okay? The mystery of divine election. Now, the key word is mystery. This is a mystery of God. You will never figure this out, this side of heaven. This is what the scripture teaches, Now, there is without question a sovereign choice of God in salvation. Man is not the sovereign choice maker, okay? I'm not coming from outside of the text trying to squeeze some doctrine into your thinking here today. This is the text, and we're extracting, we're exegeting the meaning of this text out of the text for the sake of our understanding. And I say this with love, seriously. If you have a problem with sovereign election, In all that it entails, you are going to have immense difficulty with the words of Jesus Christ's prayer here in John chapter 17. You're going to have immense difficulty with it because it's very clear. Just the frequency of this phrase alone we see numerous times. Here we see it in verse 2. Look at verse 6 for a moment. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of what? Out of the world, all right? That which he has all authority over. You gave me these men, specific context, these 11 men here in this portion. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at verse nine. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, Again, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Notice verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, who guarded who? Jesus guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The son of perdition, that was Judas, he was not a true believer, and the Scripture would indeed be fulfilled because the Scripture said that he would betray the Lord. And then jump over to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also... Okay, context to this portion now, as I said earlier, this is where he's praying for future believers, that will believe the words of the apostles penned through Holy Writ. Father, I desire that they also, future believers, that's you and that's me, whom you have, notice, given me, past tense, that you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the what? Of the world. Friends, this prayer is taking us into eternity past. We are seeing into the heart of our Lord the night before he went to the cross, the very purpose for which he came to earth. And he's taking us back to the time prior before he spoke the world into existence. What this is this is a glimpse into the council of all councils, the council of the Holy Trinity, and the plan of salvation. This is what theologians call the covenant of redemption. A covenantal promise of redemption within the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, please, friends, please do not leave here today saying, well, that message was just his opinion. That's just his interpretation. No, this is not just my interpretation. This is not just my opinion. How else can we possibly interpret these words? to all whom you have given me. He gives eternal life. How else do we interpret? You gave them to me out of that world. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but to those whom you have given me. There is no other way to interpret that by that which it says clearly. Now, what we see in this prayer is God the Father having given the Son a group of people for whom he would die an atoning death. That's that's what we see. I'll show you that in a moment. Now, question. If there is a specific group of people given to the Father, given by the Father to the Son, and that's exactly what we have here, a group of people given by the Father to the Son, we have here then divine selection a divine selection has been made. I think we'd all agree on that, I hope. You see, this is why the Apostle Paul could say this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just mark these down, if you would please. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in Him before what? The foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of whose will? Of His will. Because there was a group given by the Father to the Son in eternity past is why John the Apostle could write in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. The fact that there was a group of people given by the Father to the Son in eternity past is why Jesus could say in John 6, 37, mark that down, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, again, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus did not say all that the Father gives to me, I hope will come to me. Jesus did not say all that the Father gives to me might come to me if they're not offended by my narrow gospel. No, the guarantee is that they will come because they were given. They were given. The fact that there was a group of people chosen by God the Father and given to the Son for this specific hour is why Jesus could also say in John 6, 44, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word draw is actually drag, as you would drag up, as Paul was dragged out of town to be beaten, or as you would draw up or pull up water from a well. The fact that there was a group of people given by God the Father to the Son and eternity passed for this particular hour is why Jesus could say in John 6, 65, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Granted him from the Father. In other words, friends, God has always had a specific plan. Our salvation, your salvation, is not by way of blind chance. Your salvation, my salvation, it does not come by the flip of a coin. It is not dependent upon what man is going to do with Jesus Christ. It is dependent upon what God the Father has done in the place of people through His Son in eternity past. That's what salvation is dependent upon. In other words, Christ's mission in no way was going to fail. Christ's mission was established in the eternity past to be 100% successful. That's the guarantee. In other words, Jesus did not come with a goal in mind saying that there's a possibility that some might be saved. Jesus did not come with the goal to give eternal life as a possibility to all people in general, with no one in mind in particular. He had an in particular group in mind when he came. And that was those that were given to him by the Father in eternity past. In other words, Jesus did not come for nameless, faceless people, friends. And if you're in Christ, my hope is that you will understand the the eternal ramifications of his love for you. Jesus never did say this. Well, now that I've come according to the will of my Father, submitting myself to Him, upholding His law, and I'm going to lay down my life on the cross, I hope that maybe one of them will accept me. Or I hope that maybe a billion of them will accept me. I mean, I don't know, maybe one, maybe a billion, but we'll have to wait and see what they do. Never. 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 will such a thing be. Now, let's suppose that Jesus came only to make salvation possible for all. Jesus came, and he's here just to make salvation possible, but not certain for anyone in particular. And let's say, let's suppose that no one chose to come to him. Let's suppose that these 11 disciples, when they leave this room this night, we know historically that they are going to face heavy-handed persecution. And let's say under that persecution that they run away, and it reveals that they were never truly saved. And no one gets the gospel. No one hears this truth. They don't go to Jerusalem. They do not go to Judea. They do not go to Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. And let's just say no one chose to come to Jesus. Then, my friends, Jesus only came by chance. Jesus then only came as a possibility for man to be saved and not with absolute certainty. But that is, of course, what did not happen. He came with certainty. He died with certainty. And he cried out upon the cross to his father, it is finished with absolute certainty. This is a fact. Now I want you to follow me on this before we get to the next verse. If the father gave this select group to the son in the past, then what that tells us is that he elected them before the foundation of the earth. We see that in scripture, as I just read. Now, if those elect individuals were given before the foundation of the earth, which they were, to the Son, then those that were given were given for the purpose of what? They were given for the purpose of this hour, the hour for which he came. And that hour, my friends, was the cross. And what happens is the cross is that that group would be saved. In order to be saved, this given group had to be purchased. In order to be saved, this given group had to be redeemed. In order to be saved, this given group had to be ransomed for. A price had to be paid. And the only payment that will rightly purchase them is the death of Christ. It's the death of Christ. Christ which is what? Atonement. It's the atonement, the price for which Christ paid. Therefore, Christ's atoning death was predetermined for a group of people who were predetermined by who? By the Father. Given to who? To the Son. So Christ's atonement then was 100% certain Christ's atonement was 100% definite, it was successful and predetermined for those given to the Son by the Father, 100% successful. Therefore again, his atoning death was then specifically for, or limited to if you will, that specific group given by the Father out of the world to the Son. This is why Jesus could say in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a payment, as a ransom for many. Many who what? Many who were given by the Father to the Son long, long before Jesus ever came to this hour in order to pay for them. This is God's plan of salvation. This plan will never be frustrated. This plan will never be interrupted. Nothing can disrupt this plan. No one can prevent this plan from happening. It isn't something thrown together when Adam sinned. It is his design. It's his decree originating in the mind of God and worked out before creation was ever spoken into existence. What does this reveal for us? It reveals this, that salvation is entirely God's doing. It is all God. That's what grace is. That's grace. In other words, friends, your salvation was no accident. It was not an accident, and it certainly wasn't because of some great decision that we made to get saved. It wasn't because of some decision that we made to make Jesus Savior, because if that were the fact, then we all would certainly have something to what? Boast about. We could say, I chose Jesus, Uncle Bob didn't choose Jesus, therefore I can boast, but I can't. I can't. You, my friends, were in the heart and the mind of God before the universe was ever set into motion. That's divine sovereign love. That's gospel love. Before you knew him, before you knew anything about him, he knew you, he chose you in order, as he said earlier this night, to bear fruit. To bear fruit of what? Salvation as a group given to the Son by the Father in eternity past. Do you understand His love for you this morning? Eternally? Personally? Intimately? Because you see, friends, it is useless effort. It is useless to get stirred up with anxiety to attempt to argue against the mysterious divine truth of salvation. There's no use in kicking against the goads, in other words remember Paul? What did did the Lord Jesus say to Paul? Paul, you're kicking against the goads. You're kicking against the goads. And a goad is a long pointed metal rod that you would stick in the rear end of an oxen when he would kick and get all wild and you would stick him with a goad. He said, Paul, you're kicking against the goads. You're kicking against my sovereign truth. May we not kick against the goads. This is the declared word of God. This is what the Bible teaches. And if you're a true born again believer, beloved, the last thing that this glorious truth ought to do to you is offend you. Many of us have been offended by this truth. When I was a new believer, I was offended by this truth until I saw it for myself through the scriptures. Man did not devise this doctrine. This is the truth of Jesus Christ revealed in eternity past in the mind of the Father given to us. And this is the greatest manifestation of God's love for you. That he beset his love on you in eternity past. And Christ came in order to die specifically for you and to bear the wrath of the Father in your place, granting you his righteousness. That's love. That's the gospel. In order to give you what? What, is he, what did he come to do that for? To give you and I what? Eternal life. What is eternal life? Next question. Answer verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know you, that they, they who? Who's the they? All given to the Son by the Father. That group given to the Son for which he came to save. And also it's important that we know as Christians that salvation is much more than quantitative. It is also qualitative. In other words, it's just much more than living forever in peaceful harmony with our Creator. It's qualitative. Eternal life is eternal quality. In other words, it is having a true saving knowledge of of the one true God in and through Jesus Christ alone. That's quality of life having that personal relationship. So to know him then is much more than intellectual, but it is also experiential. And we as, in Christ have an experiential and intellectual understanding of the God who came to save us. Now, we don't want to give the gospel to people and say, hey, you, you want to uh, believe in Jesus so that you have a personal relationship with him. Because if we really think about it, every single human being in this entire world right now has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everybody has a relationship with God. There's only two kinds of relationships that you can possibly have with God. You either have a relationship of rebel with God as judge, sinner, rebel with God as your judge, or you have a relationship of a child with God as father. Therefore, everyone has a relationship, but not all relationships are good. One relationship is bound for heaven, the other relationship is bound for hell. And because you are in Christ by his atoning work, you have peace with God, and therefore our relationship has been changed from rebel and God as judge to child and God as As Father. That's what you have in Christ. If you're not in Christ, the hope is that God has you here today to change the relationship by changing your heart, by changing your mind, by transforming you. That's the hope. That's why we preach the gospel. To build up God's people and those who are not in Christ come to saving faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's no accurate knowledge of God. There's no accurate knowledge of salvation outside of Jesus Christ because outside of the cross and outside of Christ, there's no possible way to have peace with the Heavenly Father. No possible way. Why? Why is that? Verse 4. Okay, now we move to feature number 2 of your bulletin outline. Here now we have the price of Christ's ministry. We just looked at the purpose of Christ's ministry. Now we look at the price of Christ's ministry. Verse four, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now again, don't forget, this is a prayer of Jesus to the Father. Notice, this is very interesting. Although the final act of the Lord's mission here was yet to be performed, which was the cross, notice what Jesus affirms. He affirms in this verse that his task, Has been accomplished. Notice, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished past tense the work which you have given me to do. What was the ultimate goal of that hour? It was the cross. He hadn't laid down on the cross yet. Jesus is taking for granted that this final step would be taken. In other words, the price would be paid, it will be paid. Now, here's the price, okay? Now, here's the price. You want to write this down. The price of Jesus Christ's mission, the price of his ministry was this. Perfect work. Perfect work. Not grace. Jesus did not operate and function and serve by grace. No. He operated and served by work, and that work was active obedience to the demands of the law. That active obedience, that was his work. He didn't operate by grace. He worked perfectly in his his God nature. If Jesus operated and accomplished the task by grace, we wouldn't be recipients of grace. God's demand was a perfect work a perfect standard, and Jesus actively obeyed the perfect righteous standard of the Father in your place. That's active obedience, which was followed by this, his passive obedience. He upheld the law perfectly in his active obedience. That was the work. He came and he laid down his life. That was his passive obedience because that's the last thing he deserved. He actively upheld the law for you and he laid down his life for you because we couldn't uphold that law actively and our consequence would be hell. That's the gift. Active, passive obedience of Jesus Christ. He died as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of those given to him from the Father. It was a work for him. It was a perfect work for him so that it could be grace for us. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can attain, brothers and sisters. He did it all. That's the gospel. So, to to all intents and purposes here, his work was already done in his mind. His death and his resurrection was done. It was accomplished in his mind. Although he hadn't come to the passive obedient part yet. He upheld the act of obedience. Now the passive obedience was to lay his life down. Now, the price that he paid, that leads us to our last point. And this is the payoff. The payoff of Jesus Christ's ministry. Notice he has one petition. One petition to the Father here. Now, Father, verse five, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before what? before the world was, before the world ever was. So his one petition was that the Father would receive him back into glory. It's the place from which he came. He came out of heaven and lowered himself to become a man. The God-man, 100% man, 100% God. He's the only person that's ever been 200% of something. That's what it took for him to uphold God's standard in his act of obedience. He had to be God, but yet he had to be man at the same time because God requires that man upholds his word, his truth. We can't do it. Apostles couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. No prophet could do it. No priest could do it. It took the great high priest, Jesus Christ, coming out of heaven, becoming a man, in order to uphold it. And then, once he upheld it, he laid his life down. No man takes my life. I lay it down freely. I got the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. The God man. Notice he said, give to me the glory we once had, literally, that I used to have. Literally, that I used to have with you. This glory that I used to have with you This is an unmistakable reference to his pre-existence. This is an unmistakable reference to his equality with the Father. He's God. Glory that I once had. And this confirms his claim that I and the Father are what? One, as he said in John chapter 10, verse 30. So the payoff is the glory that he once had with the Father once he would come and atone for the sins of that group that was given him out of the larger group for which he approached that hour for. Now as I get ready to conclude, listen to the words of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, reads this. Christ... Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? The Father. He's Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. He's eternal God in every single tongue, whether they're just or whether unjust, whether they're in heaven, whether they're in hell, whether on the earth, they will declare Jesus Christ as Lord. Whether it's in judgment or whether it's in glory, they will say that he's king of kings, he's lords of lords for the sake of the glory of the Father who sent him. Every tongue. So what do we learn this morning from Jesus' prayer? Okay, we learn many things. But for today, just for today, let us leave with this in mind. Okay? Here we're wrapping up. Now note something very important. Notice what Jesus is praying for here in John chapter 17. Here's the God-man, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. Notice that he is praying here for something that is sure to come to pass. He's praying for something that is sure to come to pass. He knows that God's sovereign decree, that it was unchanging. Nevertheless, Jesus prays. Remember, he prayed before the tomb of Lazarus knowing he would raise him from the dead. Remember, he prayed before feeding the five, 15, 20,000 knowing he would feed them. These truths for which Jesus prayed were not theories. These were not theological possibilities, but they were absolute certainties. Nevertheless, he prays. God prays. You know, people will often ask this when they hear these type of teachings. When they hear sovereign grace taught through the Bible, they'll fold their arms, they become embittered, and they'll go, well, why even pray then? If God has set everything sovereignly into order, why pray? They'll also say, okay, if God has sovereignly chosen who's going to be saved, why pray and why evangelize? We must evangelize. You must evangelize. I must evangelize. I evangelize every week from here and I evangelize whenever God puts someone on my path who's not saved by his grace. So why pray and evangelize if God has sovereignly chosen all who will be saved in eternity past? Because of this. God has also divinely decreed that prayer And evangelism are the means to accomplishing the sovereign will in which he set in order in eternity past. That's why. Our prayers and our evangelism are a means to his end, friends. Question. Who suffered more than Jesus Christ for the namesake of Jesus Christ? Nobody suffered more than the Apostle Paul. That brother preached the word, that brother evangelized, that brother established churches by the grace of God, that guy trained up elders, and that guy moved on in a missionary fashion to establish more churches. And he suffered, and he suffered time and time again. He was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was flogged, fill in the blank, and it was done to him. He was left for dead. And Paul said this, you want to know why he endured those things? You want to know why he endured? You want to know why he prayed unceasingly? He gives the answer in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. He said this. For this reason, for this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen. For the sake of the elect. So that they also may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. He's saying, I endure the ministry, I preach the gospel, I endure this suffering for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the group given by the Father to the Son in eternity past. I persevere for their sake so that they'll come to saving faith. They're elect, but they just don't know it yet. We evangelize because there's an elect group of people out there who don't know it yet. We pray because there's an elect group of people out there who don't know it yet. And they won't know it until the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates them, causes them to be born again. That's why Jesus said, unless a man be born again, literally born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. He cannot understand the things of God. He'll never get to heaven unless he's born again. Who does that work, friends? God does that work. Only God can cause someone to be born again. And he does it by way of the preaching of his word, the proclamation of his gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, the glory of God. That's why. Paul endured for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they would attain salvation, which is only in Christ, and with it, eternal glory. So therefore, it would be wrong to pray like this. Lord, I pray that you'll save everyone. You don't want your kids to pray that in a loving manner, you want to explain to them why. Because to pray, Lord, I pray that you'll save everyone, is wrong because that is praying contrary to the revealed will of God as we see in Scripture. It would be right, however, to pray, Lord, out of this group of hearers, all of which, let's just say all of our unbelievers, all of this group of unbelievers, I pray, Lord, that out of this group of hearers you will save your elect through the preaching and proclamation of your word. That's the right way to pray. That's the biblical way to pray. So why? Why pray and why evangelize if God is sovereign? Two meditations to walk away with. Once again, number one. God has decreed that our prayers are the means that he uses to accomplish His sovereign plan. Number one, God has decreed that our prayers, because we're in Christ, and only because we're in Christ, are the means He uses to accomplish His sovereign plan, which He set in order in eternity past. Number one. Secondly, Jesus Christ, sovereign God incarnate, knowing all things as Lord of Lord, as King of Kings, as the Alpha and the Omega, prayed unceasingly. Because Jesus did it. And he was God. In other words, Jesus, knowing with certainty that the Father, or his will, would be done, Jesus never, Okay, God incarnate never folded his arms and said, well, if all things are going to take place, they'll take place. I'll just kick back and take it easy. If if my father's just chosen all things and set them into order, why pray? No, never. Jesus never took a fatalistic approach to anything. That's the point. And he was God. May this truth of God's sovereign will and salvation drive us to Pray drive us to evangelize. Many Christians ask, why, why are things always upside down in my life? Perhaps because you never pray. They are instruments of God's discipline to drive you to your knees to pray. Because His will will be done. It will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. Now, now, If you're here this morning and you don't know this glorious Lord or which we've been preaching about for the last, I don't know, call it 20 minutes or so. (laughs) Here's the call. The general call's gone out. The gospel is this. You are a sinner and you are at war with God and God's at war with you, and His demand for you to get to heaven is absolute perfection. You must be sinless, you must be perfect, and you must please Him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all your life. That's the standard. That's bad news. That's bad news. The gospel means good news. And you'll never understand the good news unless you understand the bad, which was just declared. The good news is this, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the sins of all those that were given to him in eternity past. He came to that hour and he laid down his life. Well, you may sit here and say, well, maybe I'm not chosen. Well, let me say this to you. Repent of your sin you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you turn from your sin, you embrace him, you trust him as Lord of lords and king of kings and you submit your very life to him and by his grace and the faith that he will implement to you, he will enable you to follow him and obey and it will be proven that you are a child of God chosen before the foundation of the earth. That's how you know. You must repent, you must believe and you too shall be saved. I'm going to ask our dear servants within this church to stand and prepare for communion this morning. And friends, I ask that you just give me your ear for a few more minutes. As we come to the Lord's table together this morning, we together must think on these great truths prayed by our dear Lord himself for you. Making known what it is that the Son has done for sinners like us. We deserve hell. He came to bear the shame, to lay down his life. He has earned and he has merited our righteousness, fulfilled in the demands of God's law. He laid down his life. He holds none of your sins against you if you're in Christ. In the hands, as these hands of God's ministers here, Distribute the bread broken for you, as they de- deliver to you the cup communicated to you. So, too, keep in mind that it was Jesus Christ whose body was offered up for you, and it was His blood that was shed for you. That's what the cup and bread represent. He said, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He came to His hour with you in mind. This is where we come to the table. And we confess our sins so that he washes us and cleanses us. You're forgiven once and for all and forever. If you have unconfessed sin in your life and unrepentant sin from the last day, the last week, where we get out of it and repent of it and turn from it because of what he's done. Now, for all who are not members in good standing of a true biblical church, in other words, if you're visiting here today, yes, we want you, and you're a Christian, we want you to commune with us here this morning. But if you are in church, under church discipline in another church, you must abstain until you make it right with those that you're under discipline with. If you don't confess Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, if you're not born again, in other words, and you haven't repented this morning and come to saving faith by His grace this morning, abstain from taking. For all who are living in rebellion against God and unbelief, please abstain. Because the Bible's clear. This food and this drink will only bring upon you further condemnation. Because it's saying that I identify and I believe in the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, you're drinking damnation under your own soul. Please abstain. But those who've confessed the Lord Jesus as their Savior, who are born again of the Spirit, come to the table and rejoice. Together, for all that he's done on our our behalf. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of scripture. Thank you for the glory of the gospel. Thank you for your divine plan set forth in eternity past, made evident and made clear to us by grace through the illuminating light of your word. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for calling us. We thank you for transforming us. And Lord, may we together grow in this grace, grow in this knowledge to embrace the truth of Scripture, that the Father may be glorified through the Son as we walk and as we serve and minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.